become, of, of man and of angels and of those below the earth that none is worthy. But then in chapter 5 through 7, we'll see that one is worthy. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Then we're going to see our response to the one who is worthy. The response first of those believers, and then the response of all creation. So, worthy is the Lamb. And praise God for that. Amen? So, verse 1, it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So now here we are, we're back up again in heaven with John. John has been talking all this time about the throne of God. Remember that in chapter 4, the focal point of heaven is the throne of God. As he enters into heaven, he doesn't mention the golden streets or the pearly gates or anything else. He talks about the throne, what's on the throne, what's before the throne, what's above the throne, who's circling around the throne. Remember that on the throne sits God the Father. And he doesn't see a figure he sees, you know, light emanating from the throne. He sees a rainbow around the throne, speaking of God's faithfulness to his promises. We see the 24 elders seated on lesser thrones, wearing white robes and golden crowns. We, heard Lund we saw that lightning and thunderings and voices proceeded from the throne, like on Mount Sinai, the voice of God thundering in heaven. The seven lamps of fire before the throne, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The sea of glass before the throne. Again, the Old Testament tabernacle is a model of heaven. The bronze laver. Again, this water basin that is before the throne of God. We saw the four living creatures in the midst of the throne. One with the face of a lion. One with the face of a calf or an ox. One with the face of a man. One with the face of an eagle. As we talked about last week, as they marched through the wilderness, camped in the, in the shape of a cross, the children of Israel, that each one of those directions had a banner that led the way. And they were a banner of a lion of the tribe of Judah, the calf, the man, and the eagle. So when God looked down on the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness, he saw the very same thing that we now see in heaven. It was a picture of heaven as they were surrounding the holy of holies in the tabernacle. So the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of the throne. And there we saw worship and glory and honor and thanks being poured out upon the one who sits on the throne. What did they praise God for? For his holiness, for the fact that he's almighty and he's eternal. So then at the end of that, we see them casting their crowns before him. They worship him. He gives them crowns and they give the crowns right back. Because guys, any good works we do on this earth are only because of the Lord. And what he does in us and through us, so to him be all the glory. And so this is what's happening in heaven. This is the scene. Praising God as the one who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power as the creator of all things. And praise God that one day we're going to be around his throne worshiping him forevermore. So chapter 5 begins. That's the scene that's going on in heaven. The angels are there. The 24 elders are there. They're casting their crowns. They're worshiping God. It's with a loud voice, as we're going to see again in this morning's chapter. As I said, I believe heaven is going to be a loud place. But we're going to have young ears to take it. Amen? It won't be too loud for us, but we're going to love it. You know, think about how loud we get at a sporting event. Right? We get all excited at a sporting event, and we cheer, you know, for people running, you know, a bunch of guys running around in uniforms knocking each other down, and we go crazy, right? Imagine what will we like to cheer for Almighty God in heaven one day. I don't think it's going to be subdued. I don't think we're going to be like, oh, here comes God. Oh, praise God. Now, we're not going to do that. I think we're going to be excited. 
Now the scene in heaven begins to shift. We're still looking at the throne, but instead of looking, again, just at the throne, he's going to look at, the, at Almighty God, and God is holding something in his hand. And as we saw there in verse 1, he sits on the throne, and he has a scroll in his hand that is sealed with seven seals. Now what is a scroll? I know it's real basic, but it's an ancient parchment used for writing letters or books. And this is a unique scroll for several reasons. One, God's holding it. So God's holding it. You know it's important. Amen. Secondly, it's written on both sides. And this is very unusual because usually when you read a scroll, you would roll it out, read a bit, roll it out, read a bit. Pretty hard to turn that thing over. But you know, very rarely did they write on both sides. But this just tells me that there was a lot of writing, almost more than the scroll could contain. And once the writing on the scroll was completed and was full, they would roll it together and then they would seal it with a wax seal. In this case, it has seven seals upon it. And a lot of times it had the mark of the one who had sealed it meaning that was the only one who could open it, or they would seal it delivered to a certain person, and only they could open it. So in this case, there's this scroll in heaven, and it's being held in the hand of Almighty God, and it has seven seals upon it. So what exactly is on this scroll? Here's the ultimate truth. We don't know for sure. There are many people who believe different things about this scroll, and I'm going to share with you what I believe, and I believe that it's backed up by Scripture. So what's on this scroll? It appears to me that what God is holding is the title deed to the planet Earth. And he holds the title deed to the planet Earth in his hands. And since nearly two-thirds of the book of Revelation is a direct correlation with Old Testament text, it's a good place for us to look for deeper understanding. So don't turn there, but in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is under siege of Babylon. And they're about to be overthrown and overtaken. It's going to be taken. And God told Jeremiah in the middle of this whole siege that his son Hananiel, or his cousin, excuse me, Hananiel would come to him and offer to sell to him a field in Anathoth. Because Jeremiah was the near kinsman. You ever heard that term? The kinsman redeemer. We'll talk more about that. So he comes and he's going to offer him. Now, on the face, this looks like a horrible deal. Can you imagine if our country, imagine we were being invaded and somebody, you know, that your, your, your neighborhood's being wiped out. People are running in the streets. The, the, the neighborhood's being taken over by a foreign country, and someone comes up and offers to sell you their house. The house they no longer have. The house that's been overtaken, right? Well, that's what's happening. He comes to Jeremiah and says, hey, you're the kinsman. Hey, bro, how about you buy my land? The land that the Babylonians have just taken from me and I no longer possess. This sounds like a horrible deal. But you know what? God has a plan. And God told Jeremiah to buy the land from his cousin. Why? As a witness to the fact that they would one day be back. That they would not always be in Babylonian captivity. That one day that land would revert back to the children of Israel. And that his descendants would then be able to reclaim that land because he had purchased it. This may not make sense to you why I'm talking about this, but it will make sense in a minute. So when he, he tells Jeremiah, you know what? I've prophesied that one day you will return to the land. Jeremiah, I've prophesied through you. And now I want you to put your money where your mouth is in a sense. I want you to stand up for what you have taught and act like you believe it. And so when the time comes, he's going to offer you the land. Give him the 17 shekels that he wants and take the sealed scroll. That's what the word is. 
Take the sealed scroll, the title deed of the land, and put it in an earthen vessel and leave it there for when one of your relatives comes back into the land and the land and its ownership papers will be waiting for you. So the deed was signed by both sides. It was rolled up in a scroll and it was sealed. The title to the land that in a land of promise that would then revert back to the children of Israel once they left captivity. Now, does this sound like anything to you? To me, this is very clearly a picture that this land used to belong to us, the world did, until Adam and Eve sinned. And then dominion went to the enemy. And the Bible will talk about that. I'm getting ahead of myself. But dominion went to the enemy. But praise God that he is going to buy it back for us. Not because we deserve it, but because he's God and he's great. Amen? And he's gracious. Now, we'll talk more about this in detail as we move on, but Jeremiah owns the property at this point. He's bought the land from his cousin. He signed the deed. He sealed it. He placed it in an earthen vessel, but it's not going to be until the end of the rule of Babylon, the end of the Gentile rule, that he will be able to take possession of it. So he owns it, but he doesn't possess it. He had purchased it, but a period of time would pass before he would take possession of it. And during that time, again, there was never any doubt that one day he would possess it. When God, creator of, of heaven and earth, created it, he gave dominion to Adam and Eve. As I said, Genesis 1.28 says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gave dominion to Adam and Eve over the whole earth, but when Adam and Eve sinned, they gave dominion to Satan. They forfeited their dominion over to the enemy. A dominion God never intended for Satan to have, but of course he knew that he would because he's all-knowing God. Amen? Now there's proof of this. Some would say, well, Satan doesn't have dominion of this world. Really? What planet are you living on, right? But there's proof in the word of God. In Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, when Satan tempted him, he said, the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now, Jesus rebuked him for tempting him, but he never corrected the fact that Satan did have dominion over the world. That dominion had been delivered to him by sin, and Satan, the Bible tells us in many places, is the God of this world. Now, does that mean God's not in control? Of course not. God is in control. God is, and Satan is a defeated foe. He's not won the battle, amen? But at this time, right now, God has allowed him, because of the sin of mankind, to have dominion over the earth. But when Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, he not only redeemed us, but he redeemed the world. Matthew 13 says, And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The field is the world, and the treasure is his bride, you and us. He found us, he redeemed us, he restores us out of a sinful and a lost world. He purchased the world and the church within it. So the world sold into slavery by Adam and Eve, slavery to sin and death, Hebrews chapter 2, the world is still under dominion of Satan. It says in Hebrews 2, for in that he will put all in subjection under him. 
He left nothing that is not under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. That's Jesus. Not all things are under him because the world is in rebellion and the world is separated from God. Now we can be born again and walking with him in the midst of it, but this helps us understand what's going on in the world today a little bit, doesn't it? When we look around, now there are those who believe that we're in the millennial kingdom right now. I'm trying to figure out how in the world you get to that. But here's the reality. Satan is not chained up yet, is he? He roars like a roaring lion. He roams about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. But praise God, there's a day coming when all that's going to be put to an end. And so, this is the Pastor Dave's opinion. A lot of theologians agree with me. A lot of commentators agree with me. This is the, you know, the title deed to the earth that is being held in the hand of Almighty God, the right hand of God, as he sits upon the throne. It says in verse 2, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? The strong angel. We don't know who this angel is. Some have suggested maybe it was Gabriel. We don't know for sure. But the angel issues a challenge to all of creation. Who can open the scroll? Who's worthy to open the scroll? Now remember, John is watching this. And the scroll is in the hand of Almighty God. What would make one worthy? Who meets the qualifications to open the scroll or open the book? Well, we know there's two qualifications. One, they needed to be a near kinsman, a kinsman redeemer. One that was related to the one who lost the land, and that would be Adam. So they would have to have, be someone who was, was a part of humanity. An angel couldn't do it. Needed to be somebody who was related to Adam. And he must have the ability to purchase the property, the purchasing power to buy us out of our sin. So he must be one who's taken on humanity, and he must be one who has the ability to take all of our sin upon himself to redeem sinful man back to holy God. And there's only one person who can do that, and his name is, there it is. So worthy is the lamb. Remember when Jesus' public ministry began. John the Baptist saw him coming to be baptized. 30 years of preparation for three years of ministry. We do the opposite today, right? Three years of preparation for 30 years of ministry sometimes, right? But here's the son of the living God, spending 30 years in preparation. And as his public ministry begins, he walks down and John the Baptist sees him and says, Behold the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And worthy is the Lamb. He is the one. He is our Redeemer. So who is worthy? Well, in verses 3 and 4, we're going to see that from those who are there, from the creation, none are found worthy. Look at verse 3. And no one in heaven or in the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. The angel invites anyone in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. In heaven, any angel. On the earth, any human being. Under the earth, any in the demonic realm, is there any created being who can open the scroll? Is there anyone who can come and take it? Is there anyone who's a near kinsman of Adam who can take the sin of all mankind upon himself and redeem a fallen world back to a holy God? Is there anyone who can do that? Now, what we don't know is after he made this pronouncement is how long he waited. How long was John watching and waiting to see 
Can somebody come and take the title deed to earth away from the enemy? Is there anyone who can do that? We don't know again how long he waited, but no one was able to step forward to take the scroll out of the Father's hand, to redeem sinful man and, and, and sinful earth, to put dominion back into the hand of the Lord. No created being is able, no angel, no human being, no demon. Now how does John respond? He's watching this. Remember, he's in heaven. He's one who's had a relationship with the Lord, and he's watching this. He's been one who has you know, written books in the Bible. Right? He wrote the Gospel of John, First and Second and Third John. He's now been on the island of Patmos. He's been snatched up into heaven. Here's someone who's fully invested, who's fallen in love with the Lord, who has a burden to see the lost saved and to see a dying world redeemed. And he looks, and no one can open the scroll. And here's how he responds. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look at it. John in heaven, having seen the glory of God and the light that radiated from the one seated on the throne, he's been caught up from the rock quarry of, of Patmos to the awe and wonder and the glory of heaven, from sinful fallen world to the holiness and perfection of heaven. And John knows what life is like on earth, and now he knows what life is, life is like in heaven, and he begins to weep when he sees that no one is worthy. The word weep there literally means to sob and wail uncontrollably. John wasn't just sitting there with a tear running down his face. He was broken. This gripped his heart because he understood what this meant. This meant that earth would remain in the hands of the enemy, that the population of the world would remain, again, largely under control of the enemy. Now, John knew he was going to heaven, but he still had a burden for those who were lost. As Christians, we can become callous about the world around us if we're not careful. Amen? We can become so disgusted by the sinful behavior of the lost that we become hardened toward them when we ought to be heartbroken. Amen? You know, I loved the Truth Project. It was fantastic. And one of the many things he talked about is that those who don't know God are literally being held captive by the world. And I just love that point is, here's someone who's been held captive, but praise God that Jesus came to set the captives free. And when we look at a lost and a dying world, instead of being hardened toward them, we need to be heartbroken for them. And we need to look for an opportunity to reach out to them with the love of Christ. Because guess what? That's every single one of us apart from his grace. Amen? I know I say this often, but it's so true. You know, we could use a little more grace in our lives. Is that true? And we could look at the world more through the eyes of our Savior. We could get tainted. I get it. I understand. And you know, and God doesn't like sin, and he's disgusted by sin. But I know this sounds like a flip answer, but it's true. We can hate the sin and love the sinner. That's what the Lord does with us. Aren't you glad? And so we see here that his heart is broken. And if we truly come to the place where we see the world through our Savior's eyes, we'll be a lot less, do a lot less self-righteous leering and a lot more humble weeping. Instead of looking down on people, we'll get down on our knees and intercede for them. So the thought of Satan's continued dominion and the world and its people remaining predominantly lost and in the dark, it broke John's heart and brought him to tears. And I'm convinced 
that heartbroken tears do a lot more to reach the lost than self-righteous leers. Amen? I believe that if we reach out to people in love and in grace and in mercy, and we don't act like we've got all the answers and they're idiots, but instead we come to them and say, you know what? I'm broken for you. I'm burdened for you. I care about you. I love you. And so does the Lord. And let me tell you what he's done in my life. Amen? We all have a testimony, don't we? You don't have to have a, a Bible college degree. You don't have to be an advanced theologian to share your faith. All of us can say, here's who I was, then I met Jesus, and now here's who I am. Amen? That's our testimony. John is weeping. John is heartbroken because he is burdened for the lost. And every believer this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. Amen? That ought to be our heart. So worthy is the lamb. Who is worthy to open the scroll of redemption? So far, we've seen in verse 3 and 4, none found worthy. And boy, if the chapter ended here, this would be pretty sad, wouldn't it? But praise God it doesn't. Look at verse 5, because there is one who is worthy. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So one of the elders, remember the elders are the redeemed human beings that were in heaven surrounding the throne. 24 of them, we're not positive who they are. I tend to believe 12, you know, for representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, the Old Testament and the New Testament saints. Ultimately, it is the whole body of believers, both those who are saved, you know, in the Old Testament 